All right, our last section here, and this is a shorter one. Uh, the worthy one is worshipped, Revelation 5, 11 through 14. We're going to see three more cycles of worship. Um, but first, just a quick review of uh, where we've been so far. Uh, I, I found these quotes by Larkin just today after having put together the whole presentation already, and I wanted to fit them in somewhere. So um, here I've got Larkin and uh, Kelly. Could you read this for me? We see from these references that there is something that was lost to mankind and the earth that is to be redeemed. And we do not have to go far to find out what it was. It is the inheritance of the earth and of immortal life given to Adam and Eve. And that was lost in the fall of Eden. When Adam sinned, he lost his inheritance of the earth and it passed out of his hands into the possession of Satan to the disinheritance of all Adam's seed. The forfeited title deed is now in God's hand and is waiting redemption. Its redemption means the legal repossession of all that Adam lost by the fall. Adam was impotent to redeem the lost possession, but the law provides that a kinsman may redeem a lost possession. Thank you. And this kinsman redeemer, we see prefigured in Boaz in the, the book of Ruth, where uh, Ruth could be redeemed by a kinsman of her dead husband, um, and that um, Boaz steps in as that redeemer and takes her as his wife. Uh, in a similar way here, Christ has redeemed the earth by standing in as a kinsman redeemer, and he has to be a kinsman. Um, he has to be human um, in order to receive uh, what was lost by Adam, who was a human. That's why um, we have the first Adam through whom all have died, and the second Adam through who all may attain to eternal life. But here into our, into the worship, uh, Kelly, could I have you read here in verses 11 and 12? Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Thank you. So these, so now, um, John has just witnessed the worship of the four living creatures and the 24 elders, and he looks up and he hears a voice, and it's the sound of myriads and myriads of angels. Uh, myriad is the largest number in uh, Greek. So this myriads of myriads is myriads by myriads. I believe it's either a thousand times a thousand or 10,000 times 10,000. But the point isn't the specific number here. I think he would have used a specific number had he meant a specific number. Uh, but what he is speaking of is essentially an innumerable number of angels. He is looking up and I doubt he's counting them. He is just saying, this is how astounding this chorus of angels were um, that I could hardly number them. Uh, so there are thousands of thousands and they say in a loud voice, and this is not a quiet or a meek voice, but this is loud worship of the lamb, that worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
So if we look at these, it's pretty easy to count that there are seven attributes here that uh, it is attributing to uh, the lamb and saying that the lamb is worthy to receive these adulations. Um, power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. These four are going to be repeated again later. Honor, glory, and blessing here are you. Wait, is that right? No, power, riches, wisdom, and might are unique here, where it's these three, honor, glory, and blessing, are going to be uh, used later uh, when God and the Lamb together are worshipped. But these ones, power, riches, wisdom, and might, are unique here to the worship of Christ. And uh, Ephesians, very similar to the book of 1 John, in that it's written to, uh, to a broader Christian audience, although it was... Um, given specifically to the church of Ephesus, uh, the context determines that it was meant to be shared with all the churches in the area. And here we see the attributes of Christ spoken of right at the beginning of this book, still in the introduction to it. And Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of, the, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So to go back to those quickly, this power, riches, wisdom, and might are used together in accordance with his redemptive work. Honor, glory, and blessing are used uh, subsequently to those uh, in order to uh, put him together with God. Those are attributes together shared with God in praise. The first four unique to his redemptive work as the lamb. Here, uh, Tom Constable speaks to the fact that there are seven qualities of Christ listed. He says the lamb deserves all power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. All seven qualities belong intrinsically to Christ, being God, man, and the redeemer. The angels use seven expressions. The perfect number is probably significant to indicate the wonder of the Lamb. Uh, again, there is no clear indication in the text that these seven are uh, speaking specifically to any attribute. Like we've got in other places, the seven lamps before the throne, the seven eyes, the seven horns, the seven lampstands. So when seven is explicitly important, the text denotes that it is seven. Whereas here, we just have the simple fact that seven are listed. So it's probably significant in the fact that this would be his, uh, his perfect attributes. His worthiness that is being spoken of is perfect. Um, but it's not clearly indicated in the text that that's the intended meaning. Um, so we do have to read into the text a bit to get there. So uh, take that with a grain of salt. But we see elsewhere in context clear and explicit or clearly and explicitly that Christ is worthy and perfectly worthy 
but I think that's supported by this implicit evidence uh, in the worship being seven attributes. All right, Kelly, could I have you read this last section, verses 13 and 14? And every creature and every created thing, which is in heaven and on earth, and under the sea, under the earth and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen. And the elders found, fell down and worshiped. Thank you. Um, so here we see that now, whereas before it was all creatures in heaven, now it's every created thing. And then um, giving us more information about what every created thing is, it says, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea. So it gives us four different categories here of what it means by every created thing. Uh, this is called a merism um, in literature, where we're not giving uh, we're not giving a detailed list of everything, but we're stating the outer boundaries of what everything is. Um, so this is to say these four things and everything in between worshipped God. That is literally every single created thing uh, worshiping. Similar uh, a similar merism is to say that uh, God uh, guards over us when we sleep and when we're awake or when we are going to sleep and when we are waking up. That doesn't mean that just in the evening and just in the morning, um, God is watching over us, but all times in between. And that's here what's being um, said that every created thing, as far as heaven, as far as earth, as far as under the sea and as far as under the earth, all things are worshiping God. And what is their worship? Um, down here, they're giving blessing, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Uh, they're recognizing these truths in their worship. Blessing, honor, and glory were truths that were shared with Christ uh, when Christ was worshiped alone by the 24 elders and the four living creatures. But here, dominion is added. And dominion, remember, is the intended purpose of God in creation that man would have dominion. God maintains perfect dominion over the universe, but dominion over the earth was lost for a time to man. Even that dominion is being reclaimed by man in the man, Jesus Christ. So in Genesis 1.28, um, God conveys his creation purpose directly to man and said, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This word subdue it in some translations is translated as have dominion over it. Um, and that is a controlling phrase on the rest of this, that this is how they ought to have dominion. They ought to be fruitful and multiply. They ought to fill the earth. They have to subdue it and rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the sky, et cetera, et cetera. And if you remember in our last foundations where we did the covenant with Noah, only this clause or this phrase was absent from God's instructions to Noah. Everything else from this purpose in 128 was repeated to Noah after the flood, except for subdue it. Dominion had been lost to mankind. They were still to act um, as God's uh, people on the earth, but they had lost the right to have dominion over the earth. 
that right would be given to Christ. Um, and David, again, recognizes this. Uh, David passed the throne on to his son Solomon, who was the son of Bathsheba, uh, with David. And when Solomon established that throne and the, uh, the temple to God was built, um, David was quite old at this time, but he rejoiced and worshipped God. Uh, he said, so David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. This is intelligent worship. In Daniel 4, 3, or 4 34 to 35, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes God as the uh, as having everlasting dominion. Now, in Daniel 4, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is given this mediatorial role of uh, king of the earth, essentially, uh, where he is given absolute rule over the earth. That right has left Israel, and it's given for a time to the hands of the Gentiles. We call this in theology the time of the Gentiles. And it lasts from Nebuchadnezzar, the gold head of the bronze um, statue in Daniel 2, uh, all the way until the bronze and clay feet, which is the Antichrist kingdom during the tribulation. So from the time of Nebuchadnezzar uh, to the uh, end of the tribulation, the world will be conquered by Gentile nations. And Nebuchadnezzar was the very first king of these Gentile nations. And God humbled him um, by making him a madman to wander out uh, in the wilderness, I think, for seven years, if it was, I can't remember if it was um, actually denoted, but seven years is coming to mind here. And Nebuchadnezzar was made mad until he would recognize that God is the one who has eternal or universal dominion to Nebuchadnezzar has been given the right to rule on earth. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar writes this treaty at the end of chapter four, and the book of Daniel is an interesting tapestry because some of it is written in Aramaic, some of it's written in Hebrew, some of it's written by Daniel, some is written by Nebuchadnezzar and others. Uh, this chapter was written by Nebuchadnezzar, and it states that this was meant for successing uh, generations of rulers to read. Nebuchadnezzar essentially here being the king of the world. At this time, uh, his edict was that all kings to come after him ought to read this. That includes our presidents, uh, the kings and rulers of the world at this time. Joe Biden sitting in the White House right now. Nebuchadnezzar's order to Joe Biden was to read this. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion 
and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the most or in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then Daniel in chapter seven um, has a vision of the end of the Antichrist kingdom where that succession of Nebuchadnezzar's rule over the earth that's passed down all the way to the Antichrist comes to an end and the Most High takes power. He says he will speak out against the Most High, speaking of the Antichrist, and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years, a time being a single year, times being two years, and half a time being half a year. This is in the context of Daniel speaking about uh, the 70 weeks, where weeks are counted as years, or the seven weeks. Um, anyways, uh, but the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. This is a vision of Daniel looking forward into the exact time that we are looking at in Revelation 5, that these dominions are being handed over to Jesus Christ. He is worthy to take possession of them. And uh, here, Thomas Constable, speaking of this worship in Revelation 13, says, This song probably involved a forward or proleptic look to the end of the history of, the, of planet Earth, when every creature will bow down or bow the knee to Jesus Christ. In these two chapters, chapters 4 and 5, the sequence of hymns shows that the first two are addressed to God, that's in chapter 4, the next two to the Lamb, and the last one to both. There is also a gradual enlargement in the size of the choirs. The internal movement also builds as the last hymn is sung by every creature in heaven and on earth and under the, and under the earth to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That blessing and that thanksgiving are the only gift that we who have nothing can give to him who possesses all. So in conclusion here, uh, the worship points to Christ and to God being worthy of all things and perfectly righteous in the judgment they, they are about to bring on the earth. So God, the creator, is worthy of all worship. Jesus, the kinsman redeemer, is worthy of perfect worship. To God and to Jesus belong the dominion over all things. Those who oppose God rebel against the rightful ruler and are worthy to be judged by the king. Jesus is righteous in enacting the judgments to follow. So next week, uh, we start in on the first seal. Actually, we're going to get through four of the seals, uh, which are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, so that is the commencing judgment of Jesus Christ that he is worthy to give to the earth. And with that, uh, we finish chapter five. Mark's going to do a closing prayer. And then Naomi had um, a question. Oh, I didn't see that. Sorry. Okay. Well, I'm going to mark a closing prayer and then you can ask questions maybe. 
Sounds good. Well, why don't you go ahead and do the question first? Go ahead and do the answer the question. Okay. Okay. Uh, let me read these questions. Uh, okay. Well, Naomi is answering before we began here, saying I have so many funny pictures from youth. Yeah, I'm sure you have a lot of those pictures. Uh, what does it mean that there are seven spirits of God? Seven spirits of God, um, I think, is speaking to these seven attributes of the Holy Spirit or the seven works of the Holy Spirit. Um, and we looked at that in Isaiah 11.2. It gives us those seven attributes of God. Uh, so we, we brought those in when we looked at uh, the, the seven lamps before the throne in chapter 4. Uh, and also in, in chapter 1 when we saw the, the seven spirits of God. So I think that's that's what uh, the seven spirits of God being the seven eyes of the lamb is speaking of that um, when Christ sent the Holy Spirit into all of the earth, uh, that that was the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit that he sent. All right. Was that again? I was... Say again. What was the scripture in Isaiah again? It was 11 two. And I, I can't remember, I was just looking at something yesterday in chapter 11, and that also had to do with our study tonight. Um, if I can find that here. Isaiah. Oh, but it's... Um, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Uh, this, um, the shoot from Jesse, well, David was the son of Jesse and this Isaiah is writing after, um, after the time of David by 400 years or so. Uh, so this shoot that's gonna come from Jesse, this branch from his roots um, is, looking forward in time to Christ and then uh, in chapter or in verse two it says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord this Holy Spirit then being resting on the Lord or on this branch from Jesse so we see just like in the baptism that Christ and the Holy Spirit have a very intimate um connection just like Jesus Christ and the and God have a very intimate connection. We see some of the most intimate words in all of scripture um, being prayed between Jesus and or from Jesus to God um, in the uh, in the prayer before his um, crucifixion. Uh, so I, I think uh, it, it's not surprising then to see these seven spirits of God being the eyes of um, the lamb in revelation chapter five because the holy spirit is working in such connection with jesus christ um, that he is the one going out into all the earth convicting the world of jesus um, so i i think that's uh, quite telling and it uh i had a a another seminary student who he's considering going to seminary He's been emailing me back and forth, um, and he was asking about some of these um, 
some of the distinctives of the school I'm going to and how they teach certain things. And one thing that he asked was uh, basically what gives God the right to be so, um, so judgmental and also how uh, did God create mankind for destruction? That, that's a doctrine that goes through uh, Reformed theology. Uh, sometimes we call it hyper-Calvinism. Um, sometimes we call it seven-point Calvinism. They hang on a couple of different points, like limited atonement being that uh, Christ did not die for all of mankind, but only those who would come. Uh, being the predestined, they, they read way too far into predestined being um, pre-selected, pre, um, pre-chosen. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the, the elect, they, they do a lot of abuse to uh, what the elect is speaking of. And that limited atonement, then they say, well, Christ's blood would be wasted um, if he died for those whom he didn't elect. Uh, so, so bad has it gotten that some Calvinists, there's a Calvinist, um, um, what's the word? He helps people with their problems. Uh, counselor, a Calvinist counselor has, has written in one of his books that he will not tell anyone that Christ has died for them, because if they're not part of the elect, which he can't know, then that would be false to tell them that Christ died for them because Christ did not die for them. So that's that's one of these distorted doctrines that's entered into Calvinism, that if you are not one of the elect, then Christ did not die for you, but they've misinterpreted elect and then extrapolated on that um, to make a theological conclusion that Christ wouldn't have died for those whom he didn't elect. Uh, but you can say to anyone with confidence, whomever it is on this earth, that Christ died for them. Um, but then um, what the Calvinists have also done is the hyper-Calvinists add to these five points, which are sometimes called tulip. They've added also some, I'd call it the other side of the coin. So the, um, let's see. Can't remember which one it is, uh, but the doctrine about the elect, I think it's irresistible grace. Um, the other side of that coin being that just like God created some bound for heaven for his glory, he created some bound for hell for his glory, that it glorifies God to have created some whose express purpose was to be tortured in eternal conscious punishment. Um, the, the, I guess, dispensational or evangelical response to that is God wishes that none would perish but that all would come um I'll be saved. That, that all would be saved um and honestly a lot of the conclusions um they misinterpret a scripture they build a theology on that and then they have to make a lot of logical conclusions based on uh, their misinterpretation and it does a lot of damage to um especially the book of revelation but it, it'd be hard for them to go read through the book of Isaiah and make sense of anything because Isaiah is speaking of redemption. Uh, Isaiah, there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah and they match up with the 66 books of the Bible. Uh, it's the clearest presentation of redemption in 
all of the Old Testament, even Leviticus, which speaks of exclusively redemption. We see Christ prefigured in almost every chapter of Isaiah. And uh, seeing some Calvinists go through, uh, they can't make heads or tails of it when they look at the big picture. They have to take it one chapter at a time. And a lot of the conclusions that they'll make won't make any sense um, when you put it all together. And I think one of these, uh, I can't remember how I got on this topic. I got Calvinists on the mind. Uh, I hope none of you are Calvinists. <laughs> I, uh, I love Calvinists. They're my brothers, but I don't think they consider me their brother. Um, Calvinist well, Calvin Cochran, was never accepted during his lifetime. So. <laughs> and that's the thing is, I, I think Calvinism today is a distortion of John Calvin. Um, John Calvin definitely had his issues as a guy. Um, he did an incredible, incredibly wonderful thing for interpretation in returning to a literal hermeneutic that had been robbed from the church for, for more than a thousand years by the Catholic church, which practiced an allegorical reading of scripture. But John Calvin was just not capable of just being one man going through and returning all doctrine back to its proper place. Uh, no one is capable of doing that all on their own. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's a blind spot in Calvinist doctrine. Although they will give lip service to say, oh yeah, we improve on the doctrines of Calvin. Essentially, it's all basically the same. They have not moved much since 1515. Uh, they're, they're locked in, or 1555, I can't remember. They're, they're locked in there with Calvin. And uh, church tradition becomes almost as inerrant as scripture itself, whereas uh, evangelicals, dispensationalists, we look at scripture and say that no one man is capable of understanding and correcting all doctrine uh, in here. Uh, we stand on the shoulders of giants, but we have to we have to carry that baton and continue to uh, make adjustments to clean things up. And uh, the process of doctrine, you can see where it would make sense that some of the things that Calvin has kind of wonky in his theology, they weren't central issues. Uh, he was primarily concerned with restoring the doctrine of salvation from the Catholic Church, which had started selling penance or selling, um, what do they call? Uh, people had to pay. Yeah, what is that ditty, the a coin in the coffer springs a soul from purgatory, something like that. Um, well, they had started having people essentially pay for salvation, pay money to the Catholic Church to receive salvation or absolution or, or whatever. That was Calvin's primary concern, was rescuing that doctrine so that it was surrounded by the five solas, being especially faith in Christ alone uh, or Salvation by Christ alone, through faith alone, um, with scripture alone. Can't remember the other two. Um, but that's that's what Calvin gave to us, was a literal hermeneutic focused on returning soteriology to a proper place. But he wasn't concerned nearly at all with eschatology. And that makes perfect sense, because there's a lot of doctrines that have to come into place and come into play before eschatology ever comes into the foreground. Um, so uh, continuing off of the legacy of Calvin, Zwingli, and Luther up in, uh, in Germany, 
they, or I guess Calvin would have been a contemporary with Luther, but uh, they continue to press forward in restoring the doctrines using a literal hermeneutic. And that's what Calvin gave back to the church was a literal hermeneutic. I wouldn't honestly take anything else from Luther or from uh, Calvin as uh, set in stone, except for literal hermeneutics, and he didn't apply it consistently. Um, I think we have to go through and continue to iron things out until we've applied it consistently because God speaks in an understandable manner. It's our own deficiencies that make it difficult for us to believe those. Um, but I, I think that all parts of scripture, including prophecy, must be read with a literal hermeneutic. And that doesn't mean ignoring figures of speech, but recognizing that figures of speech are a part of a natural way of speaking. Uh, we say it's raining cats and dogs. We have to understand our cultural context in order to realize that that just means it's raining very heavily. But in scripture, where it uses figures of speech and where it's using symbolism, it often details for us what exactly is meant, either explicitly or in context. And that's why it's just too big a task for any one man to do and why we should not hang on to the doctrines of Calvin as... Uh, the inerrant word of God. Um, the doctrines of Calvin are helpful more in his process even um, than in his actual um, conclusions. So the doctrine of soteriology was rescued. I think the doctrine of ecclesiology, what exactly is the church, was rescued actually later on, um, even in the 1700s with the Wesleys and into the 1800s with, with um, some of the move away from state church in England and Ireland and Scotland. Um, in France, that was a big movement. Um, the Puritans, they had their own problems, but uh, they had a better understanding of what the church is um, in its New Testament sense. Making those distinctions between Israel and the church, where, um, where the Catholic church is pretty much conflated every place where it said Israel, they just rewrote that and said the church, um, except for the curses, only the blessings. They only took the blessings. Um, but then we continue that today, right? Uh, that's why I think there's such a big move to interpret eschatology today, because a lot of the core doctrines have been largely recovered from the destruction that the Catholic Church did to them. Um, we understand what salvation through faith alone by Christ alone means. Uh, we understand what it means to be part of the body of Christ in fellowship, moving towards a Christ-likeness, which will be completed on the day of his return. Uh, but what's left for us to understand is this large portion, about 28% of scripture, which is eschatology, eschatological. 11% um, of that or so still remaining unfulfilled. That's 10% of the Bible or more uh, that is yet to take place that Calvin didn't really deal with. And where he did deal with it, um, he allegorized it. And that dethrones God and enthrones the allegorizer, being that Calvin got to decide whatever that meant. Um, practicing allegory, uh, there's no controls on that. You read something and you say, well, this kind of sounds to me like this. Uh, you can make up a fantastical story, but it doesn't make it true. And that's the problem is that um, Calvin didn't really deal with prophecy and where he did, he did damage to it. And the Calvinists today hold on to that as if it's holy writ. And they have to reinterpret um, easy to understand passages to fit the theology that they've concocted around themselves. 
Um, I don't mean to pick on on uh, on Calvinists, but I guess that's where I've been going tonight. Um, yeah, no, I, I think. Um, yes, you do. Hey, <laughs> I, I mean, I I've only ever been a member of Calvinist churches. Um, they like me at first until they start to ask me what I think of the book of Revelation. Uh, I, I doubt there's a Calvinist out there who would agree with anything I've taught you already. Um, so be wary of that, that the book of Revelation is not just widely interpreted, uh, which we covered in our introduction. There's a lot of different views, but it's, um, it's hotly contested as well, because a lot of doctrine about the church is wrapped up in Revelation, if Revelation is stripped from an ecclesiastical context in its later portions, being chapters four through eighteen, um, a lot of a lot of especially um, charismatic churches uh, or um, some Jewish roots churches they lose a lot of their favorite doctrines. But unfortunately, doesn't matter whether we like an interpretation or not. Uh, we have to be honest to the text and we have to continue to reform. And that's, I, Sherry, I, I, I recommended that book to you and I think you said you got it, uh, Ever Reforming. It's, it's essentially saying we need to take up the mantle of Calvin, not, not lock it in stone. Yeah, you have it right there. Uh, and I think that's a good method that uh, just because an idea is new doesn't mean it's, it's wrong. And just because an idea is new doesn't mean it's right. Rather, we have to continually seek to get back to the original intent and the original meaning. And the best way to do that is with a literal hermeneutic. Um, so I, I'm waxing eloquent. Does anyone else have a comment or a thought? Nope. I'm revealing my cards here. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Always happy. And I'm I'm looking forward to next week. I think Kelly probably are looking forward to next week a lot. Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. We're getting into the exciting bits. <laughs> I look forward to every week. <laughs> okay, glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. But yeah, no, the Seven Seals—they're terrifying. But uh, we're we're in heaven before the throne, worshiping God and filling those censers of incense. So um, they don't have to be terrifying to us, but. They should stir our hearts to evangelize, uh, to go out and tell our neighbors who otherwise uh, would be part of this judgment. So um, we, we'd rather their inheritance be in heaven with us than in the pit that burns with fire, because I don't think there is a single person on earth that any of us, no matter how much we dislike being in their presence, would, uh, would wish that on. And if we do, we ought to be examining our own hearts. But um, I doubt that's the case with anyone. Um, yeah. So. Uh, All right. Well, uh, we're ready for prayer, prayer here. All right. Yep. Thanks for all. Uh, I enjoyed the comments on Calvinism. I'm not a big fan of Calvinism. Uh, neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> we'll pray for them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> all right, Lord, uh, thanks for uh, letting us all get together here tonight and study your word. And uh, we thank you for revealing uh, your truths uh, to us in Revelation and how they intertwine with uh, the whole Bible and and um, how your, uh, your uh, prophecies have all come true and how they all uh, 
come together in the end, Lord, and and uh, and just uh, proclaim your uh, your righteousness and everybody in the way that uh, everything all comes together. And we uh, thank you for Dane for putting this study together for us and uh, all the time he does uh, for that. And we pray for Dane and his uh, interviews uh, coming up too with his job and um, either with the rest of us with different events coming up, Lord, that, uh, Lord, that you would uh, bless everyone, uh, give them uh, different uh, opportunities and success in what they're doing. And uh, thank you uh, for your word and, and uh, for your love and for your grace, Lord. And we pray uh, that more people uh, We'll turn to you during these times and, and look for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Great. Well, thanks again. Mm -hmm. Awesome, guys. Have a great night. Thanks, Dane. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. All right. See you all next week. All right. Everybody be safe. See you soon. Bye.